The Grow Kinder podcast features conversations with thought leaders in education, business, tech, and the arts, who all share one thing in common, a dedication to growing kinder in their work and lives, and helping others do the same. Brought to you by Committee for Children. Today we talk with Alyssa Salas, CEO of College Track, a comprehensive college completion program that helps students from underserved communities graduate. As a first-generation college graduate herself, Alyssa has dedicated her career to improving educational outcomes for students of color from low-income communities. Alyssa talks with us about the experiences of first-generation college students, the importance of mentorship, and how social-emotional skills play a large role in a student's college success. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Grow Kinder podcast. I'm Mia Dosis. And I'm Andrea Levenhelm. And we're really happy to be talking to Elisa Salas today, who's the CEO of College Track, which is a comprehensive college completion program helping students from underserved communities graduate from college. So, Andrea, tell me a little bit about college for you. Oh, my goodness, college. I mean, was it a sort of an expectation that you would go to college always in your family? Uh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. It was one of those tracks of like, go to kindergarten, elementary, middle school, high school, college. It's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So I, that was also an expectation for me, especially because the women in my family were nurses. And so they all had to pursue uh, degrees to go into nursing. And, and so a lot of people that I grew up with, they may have gone to college because it was a college town. So it was sort of there and there was access, but a lot of them really were kind of looking at other avenues, vocations, factory work, those kinds of things. But for my family, it was expected that you would go and at least get a degree in something that you could do that was practical that would make you money and support you. So there were federal grants and state grants and and avenues for that. But there wasn't really support for students at my high school. Really, like, I was very motivated and I got no support from counselors in preparing my admissions materials or visiting colleges. That was really reserved for elite athletes. Did you feel academically prepared? I felt in high school that high school was very easy and could therefore in no way. <laughs> so I did have the sneaking suspicion that I would not be prepared for for college. And I think that was true. Even in the college that I went to, which was in my hometown, you know, I started in kind of a higher level English course. And I just remember thinking that transition was really rough and that the expectations were so much higher than what they had been in high school. And Lots of my friends and people that I graduated with, they just flamed out in year one. They were done. They weren't going to... A lot of them came back and pursued it later, which I think is to their credit and, and has you know resulted in really great things for their lives. But at the time, you know, going in 18 years old with what we'd been given in high school, we didn't... I don't think many of us felt prepared. Oh, man. So that first year of college kicked my ass. <sighs> you know, actually... Both socially and academically. I mean, it was okay. Socially, after the first semester, it was fine. Yeah. But... I mean, it was way higher level than what I'd been used to. I did, I ended up loving college, though. I mean, I loved it once I got the hang of it. It was just so different. Well, I love, you know, if I could do anything, it would just be, if I were independently wealthy, I'd just get degrees. That's my dream. I'd rather just go to school. I thought that after I got my master's in ed, then I did the master's in counseling. And then I thought, you know, it'd be really cool is if I got a law degree. Yeah. <laughs> 
my son is now 25. He's graduated from college and in six weeks is starting law school. However, I remember a particularly like contentious evening when he was in high school and we were having some crabby, crabby time where he threw some kind of minor fit and said, I don't even think I'm going to go to college. And I went, (gasps) (laughs) how could you possibly say that? things have really gotten serious right now. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. How about you with your kids? My five-year-old, we already talk about it. I don't know that I would have, I mean, I didn't do that on purpose, but you know, we talk about things that he enjoys and what's he, what he wants to do. And typical of this age, he's interested in paleontology. He's like, I'm going to be a paleontologist. And I said, okay, well, that's one of that's, you know, when you want to be a scientist, you have to go to school for a long time. And so we talk about, you know, all the grades. He's how many years extra, you know, is it? And we counted up the total number of years it would take for him to, you know, get a degree in paleontology that would allow him to work. Yeah. <laughs> and so he's like, okay, I've got this many years until I'm a paleontologist. I think actually I'm, I was sort of proud of myself after that. I was like, now he won't expect anything less. Like for him going to school for, you know, 20 years. Five times the age he is now. Right. <laughs> is normal. That seems normal. Yeah. Of course, the, that'll probably wane later on. But I do think there's other modes of learning and experience that yeah. are important. And where I can get him access to those things, I want to. And, you know, there's there's this other question that I think we'll get into today around access <laughs> and yeah. equitable access. And I feel lucky that for the most part, you know, I've got a pathway for him to go to college and that I can help him with that. And, you know, I think financially, there's a lot of questions around how that will be supported, but we're at least in a position to try to make that happen. Hi, welcome back, everybody, to our Grow Kinder podcast. And I'm Mia Dosis. I'm Andrea Levenhelm. And today we're talking to Elisa Salas, who is the CEO of College Track. Elisa, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. So you have a very interesting personal journey that led you to the position you have now. Can you tell us just a little bit about yourself and your personal connection to College Track's mission? Certainly. So I am a first-generation college graduate myself. So College Track works with first-generation college students to get them to and through college. And I have have a very similar background to many of our students. My family's from Mexico. My mom uh, was born in Chihuahua. My dad is second generation Mexican-American. And I grew up right outside of one of our regions in Los Angeles. Um, so I absolutely understand the journey of being the first, um, navigating the financial, um, social, emotional, academic terrain that is being the first to go to college. So I feel very connected to the work. In addition to that, I also uh, was a teacher and a principal and administrator and worked in policy. And so, you know, deeply understand kind of the intersection of both K-12 and higher ed and really what it takes to get kids uh, to and through. So it's been a really great journey to be able to have worked in so many different facets of education and, and really now be at a place where all of those pieces are coming together and is also deeply connected to my personal journey. And where did you get the the spark for pursuing education? You seem really connected in a variety of ways to education, being a teacher, moving into the position of CEO of College Track. What fed that for you? 
You know, I think it was growing up and recognizing that there is a lot of change that needed to happen in this world. I I had a grandfather who was very much committed to the Chicano rights movement in Southern California, and he had less than a middle school education himself. My other grandfather on my mom's side had also an elementary school education, but both of my parents are first-generation high school graduates, and they both really made it very clear that in order to have access to power and create any type of social change, getting an education was really the currency to do that. So I grew up marching in Chicano rights uh, marches and came up in a very politically active family. And on my, my mom's side, my grandfather is deeply Catholic. He was a deacon in our local Catholic church and really made the connection between social justice and faith. And I think the nexus of those two things really made it clear to me that the world needs us. And one way to, to really be active and make change is to make sure that you get an education. What were the unique challenges you faced in really getting access to admission support or moving into college as a first-generation college goer? Unlike many of our students, I feel like I had a really early recognition for why I want to go to college because it was, I had this kind of fire for social change. But I think many of our students don't necessarily have, outside of, you know, wanting to be self-sufficient, really have identified kind of a passion and purpose for going to college. So I was really fortunate in that way, but I, I didn't know the first thing I needed to do to be able to navigate the process. So I was lucky at the time to be a part of a, of a program out of the University of California, the Early Academic Outreach Program, uh, which gave a little bit more help in navigating that process. But I didn't know the first thing about preparing for the SAT. I didn't know I was supposed to study for it. I, you know, had to figure out how to fill out the FAFSA for the first time. And because, you know, my parents hadn't gone. I was also fortunate, though, that I had many friends who were also first in their family to go to college. And so there was a lot of, we didn't call it crowdsourcing back then. But, you know, when one person figured out the FAFSA website, the rest of us would kind of get on board. I think navigating the nuts and bolts, I think, can be particularly tricky. I think also for me, and I think this is shared by many first-gen students, is this notion of, of confidence to be able to apply to specific schools. I often felt because there wasn't a lot of examples um, in my family, I mean, there weren't any at this point, I wasn't clear on like what was a competitive school not or what was within my reach or not. And so I might offer that I undermatched. I went to a phenomenal university, but there were many other places that I, that I didn't even consider because I thought that they were completely out of my reach. And that's just the getting into part, right? Then there's the whole once you're in college part. You gave me a, <laughs> a real flashback. I think I cried every year in the financial aid office, every year of undergrad. That's right. I had some kind of breakdown in their office. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think for any young person, whether you're first to go to college or not, the transition is a tricky one. And, you know, you're so young yet responsible for such an adult part of your life, right? Like taking on debt or managing finances. And so there's an incredible amount of pressure. And I think for me, yeah, I, I was really lucky once I got to my university that I was able to establish real deep relationships with with college professors and I had a mentor in college. And that is really a testament to, I think, the school that I went to and that it was really small and nurturing and has as a part of its ethos, this recognition of really wanting to wrap their arms around kids. But I don't think that's necessarily, you know, every university, big public universities don't necessarily have that support. And so at College Track, we really are aiming to really be those arms that are wrapped around students. 
You know, I even wonder, Elisa, like if, you know, for students who don't have support from their families, that it's even harder than ever. And the problem now is there's all these places where you have to get the test scores and your grades and you've got to find them. You need your you need a credit card to get these different things. I mean, it's it's so there's much more complicated. Even if you navigate them, there's no confidence that the system is equitable or well, fair. Then, sure. there's, then there's sure. that. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, and there's there's also I mean even navigating that's like navigating to apply to one school, right? So once you've applied and and maybe you've gotten into a few of them, I think the other place that I have become much more passionate about in my work at College Track and where we've been really trying to develop our advising strategies is really helping students and families make really informed choices once they have several options in front of them. And I think that's particularly important in a time in our country where the return on an investment of a bachelor's degree is up for critique. And we still stand firmly behind that a bachelor's degree is the thing that's that's going to uh, transform students' ability to have opportunity and choices and contribute to economic resilience and social mobility. It could be a really tricky thing to navigate. You know, not just the application, but the making the choice to apply. And then, of course, once you're there, all of the other things that come with. There's been articles and things kind of out in the media quite a bit around the value of a bachelor's degree. And, and it sounds like you stand behind that value. And is the perspective um, at College Track that every student should pursue a bachelor's degree? So every one of our students, that is our specific mission. So we are working actively with students who are making the choice to pursue not just any college education, but a bachelor's degree. And so, you know, if it means that their pathway towards that bachelor's degree means starting at community college first, or even going to a four-year reverse transferring and then going back, we're fully supportive of all of those those pathways. But our our mission really is about the bachelor's degree because of the currency that it provides students. Again, not just in terms of of dollars, their earnings over their their lifetime, but this notion of economic resilience, right? When uh, during the recession in 2008, the unemployment rates were far higher for people without bachelor's degrees than people with bachelor's degrees, even if it meant that the wages, you know, weren't weren't that that different. And so I just think it's really important for us to recognize that there's a much broader conversation and we're supportive of folks getting whatever post-secondary education they can get to advance their their resources. But our particular mission is around the bachelor's degree. But we're we're agnostic about what you major in. And that's a key part of who we are and recognizing the real purpose and passions and dignity of each of our students that they should be able to choose. It's not a privilege that, you know, that should only be available to folks who have more money. That said, I think it's really critically important for our students to understand the average salaries post-graduation based on major categories, right? And so we actually track that information. And what's particularly interesting in our social mobility report, we've been now for the last three years surveying our alumni is there are some initial differences in salary between a STEM major and a non-STEM major. So those are the broad categories that we use, STEM or non-STEM. And part of that, our hypothesis is that really the most important thing is that you are in a major that you're really good at and you are finding work that brings you purpose and value. But I think it's important to recognize that we are deeply concerned about students being able to pay back their student debt and have you know a lifetime of, of economic choice, but we also want them to be happy and thriving in the work that they choose to do. 
And it's called a comprehensive college completion program, which I think is important. It's not it's not only about helping students get into college and navigate that piece of it, but actually finishing their degree. And so I know in my personal experience, a lot of kids that I grew up with in our first year of college, those that went, they really flamed out in year one. And then I, I myself experienced that in my final year. You know, there I was almost at the end and I, it was such a struggle to just power through in the end. And and so what are the aspects of what you provide that you think make the most difference to kind of getting kids to the finish line? So in our college program, there's two major services that we provide. Uh, what I would offer is that getting kids across the finish line actually starts in high school, which is getting kids as academically ready as possible, because that academic readiness is going to help them they're going to be able to get into schools that are, you know, have higher grad rates, that have more supports for them on campus, um, those types of things. But in our college program, we are, and this is what is making a significant difference and what really distinguishes us from other programs is uh, we know that it's not enough to get students uh, into college, that tracking them through college is particularly important. And so we triage students um, based on what we know to be true about their the last four years that we've known them while they're in high school. And so whether you know their academic readiness, what their financial vulnerability um, might be, even their social emotional wellness, and and given the fact that we've spent four years with each of these students, you know, many days after school and in the summer, we have a pretty, pretty good idea of what challenges they might face. And we triage them and, and then check in with them. More our students that are higher needs that we'll check in much more frequently. Students that are, you know, doing doing okay, we might check in maybe once or twice a semester. And so for so the advising component is, we believe, deeply critical. Um, just to be another sounding board and to be able to help students really navigate the inevitable challenges that they're going to face once they step on that campus, even if we're not necessarily experts on that one campus. So we have students that are going to 280 different schools across the country. So we can't necessarily be experts in all of those campuses, but we also, where we have critical mass, we we have our advisors actually go onto campus and visit with students. But the second piece that we provide that also distinguishes us that becomes a huge barrier for students is is our scholarships. So we offer a scholarship for students that are dreamers um, because our, our undocumented students ha- don't have access to federal financial aid. So we cover the gaps for students that are undocumented. We also have a scholarship for students that if there is unmet need um, after federal or institutional aid and our scholarship can help incentivize them to go to, to colleges that have higher grad rates, then we will also support that scholarship. And then we have a merit-based scholarship where students actually earn money, and we call it bank book, where they earn dollars for to incentivize specific behaviors that they are doing in high school, like you know getting good grades, com- completing community service hours, those types of things that we know are going to make an impact on students once they, once they go to, to college. So it starts in high school. The The college piece is really what, what helps folks get across the finish is a distinguishing factor for, for college track and then other programs. So, Elisa, with the work that you do guiding students through the college process, and given that, that you have a lot of or entirely first-generation students, have you identified a set of particular specific social emotional skills that students need to be really strong in to be successful in college as first generation students? And do you start working with them before college on those? We do. So the two big variables that come to mind that are specific to college and then 
I will talk a little bit more about the skill sets that are, um, or social emotional skills that are more broadly represented by those two things. The first one is really identifying a student's purpose for why they're earning their degree. And we begin that process in ninth grade when they join us. And that purpose for earning their degree might evolve. It will actually likely evolve over time. Most college freshmen actually change their majors six or seven times. So we expect that it's a part of the natural development process for even students in ninth grade to not know exactly what they want to do for the rest of their life or what they want to study. But having students have identified essential goal or a purpose or a problem that they want to solve is the piece that's going to get them through. And we see that over and over and over again for students that stop out or reverse transfer is it's not just the external factors that inevitably impact our students and our students from, from poverty. It's really not having a clear sense of why they're there. So purpose is the first piece. The second piece is really belonging on campus. And so this is consistent with the Gallup survey and all the research on on really getting kids connected once they're in, in college is it's really important that our students are identifying a community on campus, not just kind of friends in their dorm room, but getting connected to uh, different social groups on campus, making sure they have at least one person that they've identified as a mentor. Our students who we ask in our college student survey, if they haven't identified a mentor or they haven't connected on campus, are far more vulnerable in, in graduating, right? And so you have the sense of purpose and you have this sense of, of belonging that are critically important in social, emotional well-being and health in college. The more specific skill sets, though, that are related to that, that we begin to identify as early as ninth grade or that are related to that are persistence, self-efficacy, and emotional regulation. So we have a process, and we just piloted this last year, and we are going kind of full network next year where we have been assessing students in three of our centers using the co-vitality um, survey, which really does have a framework that asks students to think about or assesses students in their belief in their self, their belief in others, emotional competence, and engaged living. And based on those factors, we're able to identify what students are more vulnerable than others. And in the three centers that I just talked about, we've had additional wellness services. Next year, we'll have more wellness services. Some of them are interns from community partners. Some of them are our own staff members who will be able to really target and coach students so that they are not getting on campus for the first time and not having a sense of self-efficacy, you know, to be able to advocate for financial aid or be able to, you know, talk to a professor when they um, don't get a good grade or that they have, you know, their ability to empathize with others or regulate their emotions doesn't, you know, is, is helping them get connected to others on campus. So it is actually pretty surprising to us about five years ago where we were looking at data where students that had high GPA or high and high SAT scores, once they got to college, were, you know, stopping out because their feelings of self-efficacy or their ability to connect and belong on campus were not at the place where they needed to be. Um, and so that was really actually when we started thinking about what needs to be true in high school to get students ready. Right. Earlier, you mentioned that some number of your current students are, are dreamers. And, you know, there's a lot coming out around anxiety and pressure affecting students in, in K-12 and then into college. And when you think about the uncertainty that those students face as far as protection, how are you supporting them and how are you kind of boosting their resilience? So we are really fortunate to have been working with Dreamers since our founding in 1997 and have 
iterated and built upon our support for them along the way. So I'm happy to report, and this is the first thing that we talk about. We have a Dreamer conference every year. It's one of the things that we do to support them. But I remind our dreamers that there was a world before DACA, and there is now a world after DACA, and we were getting students across the finish line before DACA was around, right? And so I think it's important, and it was actually students, it was alumni who were uh, didn't have DACA, who were coming back to our centers, who were helping remind our students that that we are living in a time of great anxiety, but remember the strength and power of the community that you come from. There were undocumented college students before DACA. And I think it's important to remember that there were folks that were navigating and being scrappy and being resilient through it all. That said, I think it's also important to acknowledge that it's not just the anxiety that's created by a student not being able to navigate their own journey, the external factors, and not just for students who are undocumented, but for students that are in in families where there's um, maybe their parents are undocumented, but they're not, or maybe they have a sibling who's undocumented and they're not, where there's you know most multiple uh, designations in terms of status. The threat of of deportation feels very real because it is very real, right? And we have a, a, pl- a public environment that is not particularly helpful in really supporting our students. So what we try to do is to remind students of um, that they come from a community that has great power and from a tradition, particularly at College Track, where we have been supporting students for a long time. We also have uh, legal aid. So for students who are able to renew their DACA, we are supporting their renewal. Because there's not new applications at this time, we were actually supporting the application fee when there were applications. And then I think the the last piece is, uh, like I mentioned earlier, is is uh, making sure that students have understand that even though they don't have access to federal aid, that College Track will support them in, in going to college, uh, regardless of whether or not they're able to access dollars from our federal government. I've had other colleagues who've done similar kind of work, and I remember someone telling me once that it was a big barrier for kids whose families feel like they need to come back some at some point to help out the families, and then and they feel that they really need to go back and help the families if, if something is going on. Is that something that is common for your students? And if so, how do you deal with that kind of a family commitments kind of thing? Yes, that is absolutely a piece that we come across. I think it's actually quite common for us, particularly uh, girls and girls from Latino families. I've experienced it myself where also, I mean, it's just scary, right? To have your daughter go off to college far away. Um, and so part of what we try to do is we we try to engage families early on. Uh, what's coming to mind for me right now is we have a couple centers who have done college tours with our students, but instead of taking students, they either just take parents or they take students with their parents when they go to college tours. They'll hold the actual tour in Spanish so, you know, families can access it, you know, if they're Spanish-speaking families. And so I think engaging families early on the, you know, the, the different – and we have that luxury, right, because we work with families for four years before they have to make that decision – is getting them used to the idea and the possibility that your student may choose to go somewhere else, right? But ultimately, I think what we are about is really, you know, trying to empower the student and family to be able to make that choice for themselves. And so should it be the choice of the student and the family and or perhaps, you know, with a great influence from the family, but not necessarily the student, that it is best to stay closer to home? You know, we we support that decision. And I think, 
you know, there's students have to choose for themselves. And, um, you know, they're 17, 18 years old making these decisions, which are really, really tough decisions. We're agnostic about where students go as long as they have this, the support and the resources to be able to, to, to graduate and we'll support them in that choice. So we, we actually, we were surprised to find um, in our LA center, we initially had a hypothesis that um, many students weren't necessarily wanting to go to their local uh, Cal State, which is Cal State LA. It's very, very close to where our center is. It's, I don't know, maybe five miles away. And so we thought that everybody would want to leave <laughs> and not go to, to school there. And it just so happened that many students, it really was the right the right fit for them. And we now have critical mass at that school where they are really able to develop a cohort uh, among themselves. So our intention is always to be able to provide as much information as possible so that students and families, you know, are really able to make an informed decision. And if it so happens that the decision is that they need to stay, then, you know, we'll wrap our arms around them as, as, as much as we would if they were off um, somewhere else. We were talking about social emotional skills earlier. When you think about that, are you explicit and talking about social emotional competencies with the students that you're supporting. There's been some research that showed that a lot of employers were seeing gaps around social emotional competency, even in students who had graduated with a four-year degree, they weren't teaming well or performing well in interviews or these kinds of things. So how explicit are you in talking about that with students? And then what are the sorts of things that you do to support employability post-college? Yeah, so we've just started scratching the surface with the new co-vitality report around um, giving a name to the social emotional skills, at least the specific social emotional skills that I mentioned earlier, persistence, self-efficacy, emotional regulation. What we have been doing for the last couple years, actually, though, is also training students on identifying their ACEs score, so adverse childhood experiences, so that they have an understanding of what their own understanding of what trauma may hinder them in the future so that they at least, you know, it's not a, it's not a, not going to completely determine your fate, but that for students to be able to really name what's coming up for them. I think it's particularly important for students to recognize to, and for us to begin to destigmatize needing to get help when they need it, right? And be able to identify it. So in our college program where this typically comes up is on the one-on-one -on -one coaching that we provide to our students. If a student's particularly having, you know, a rough time, you know, our college advisors will not only use the language of social emotional skills, but also help them navigate, you know, getting additional support on campus. As it relates to, to post-college and employability, we've also, now that we have many, many more college graduates and alumni than we've ever had, and that's growing exponentially. Um, the last two years, we've really had this effort to really spread the idea of career fluency across our network. So we've done that in a couple ways. One is we've partnered with um, the Opportunity Network. They've been phenomenal friends of ours to really train our staff and support students as they are going off to college, particularly during our summer bridge program, so that they understand basic skills around resumes and interviews and what it's going to take so that they can actually get their first internship. And then in addition to that, kind of post-college, we are just going to be launching a platform for students to, for our alumni to interact with each other so that they are being able to share information on jobs, being able to practice their skills as they go through interviewing, those types of things. But back to your, your point around social emotional learning and the skills that I think may or may not be lacking. I think one thing that's particularly important for students to understand as they're graduating from college is this skill around persistence and 
just how how tough it is, right, to be able to apply to a bunch of jobs or get the interview and then face rejection, which I think is the, the pressure is far greater and the expectation once you put on all this work now that you have this degree. And so we're also, you know, through our alumni organizing and network, trying to make more space for students to connect on that as well. Is there anything else that, that you're feeling excited about in terms of trends that you're seeing, whether it's in uh, college prep or whether it's in college support, benefiting and really kind of changing the trajectory of, of equity and college achievement? I am both excited and interested in the result of um, the SAT um, putting out their adversity score index um, that just in the last month. I mean, I think it's a, a first step forward for recognizing that there has historically been both an economic and racial bias in the S and the SAT, um, but more broadly, that students should be more comprehensively evaluated, right, in the admissions process. And there's a lot of factors that contribute to uh, evaluating the merit and talent of an individual student. So I, I'm I'm thrilled about the idea that the SAT has has recognized that there is that bias and has tried to really help admissions officers and provide them with an additional data point around what additional adversity students may have have been through as a result of their of environmental factors, right? Which could have impacted their score. So it has yet to be actually used widely. And there's definitely some critiques, one in which, you know, race is left out entirely. But I I believe that the conversation is changing around the use of standardized assessment. We it's still very important for our, our students at College Track because it is actually what helps students get into better schools. But my hope is that we could have, you know, an admissions process that is far less reliant on on test scores and, and far more comprehensive and understanding the the true um, talent and experiences of the young person that is applying to their school. And me and I were speaking earlier about some of the things exposed in the admissions mm -hmm. process most yeah. recently. Mm -hmm. And um, room for improvement. Right. Lots of room <laughs> yes. for improvement. And is there one thing that if you could change just one thing about the college admissions process, just one, it was you had a magic wand and you could change that one thing, what would it be? It would be ending legacy policies. See, and legacy policies are the more benign way, right, of thinking about how privilege is capitalized in our country. So I think what's interesting is that in the admissions scandal, it exposed folks actually, you know, paying their way to get better SAT scores or someone to sit on the test or paying their, you know, admissions officers or coaches, right, to, yeah, all of those things, right? And those are so egregious. But when you think about the fact that 29% um, of Harvard's freshman class are legacies and that, you know, three-fourths of, of, of the top-ranked U.S. news report universities have legacy policies, it really makes you wonder how we are thinking about merit and equity in our country. And so, yeah, I mean, I think I, I want our students to have a fighting chance and they deserve it because they're incredible humans. And if they come from a school that doesn't have as many AP classes that they were able to tap into or they were unable to take the $1,200, you know, Princeton Review prep to boost their score by 200 points, that should not be the thing that prevents them from getting into school. So I think I think again I, I, the what was helpful about the admission scandal is that it ha I think is beginning to expose some of the pieces a, a part of our system that 
actually have we have been pretty accessible and acceptable in our country around how who is able to have more privilege in the process than others. And I, I think it's an important question to ask. So, you know, to that to that end, I'm sure you have identified those colleges um, who actually have committed to policies like need blind admissions and, and that sort of thing. And I mean, I feel really proud about my college because I know that they do that. And I know a lot of my uh, fellow alums who've been very, very sad about their children not being able to, <laughs> to get into the college, even sometimes when they're double legacies. Do you ever uh, encourage your students to to be applying to, to those schools? Yeah, I mean, I, we um, we have a framework called our Best Fit Framework that really takes into consideration three important pieces. One of them is not whether or not there's a legacy policy, but um, but they, it is more around really leveraging the ROI of your degree. So we encourage students to go to schools that have higher grad rates than the national average because their chances of graduating are going to be higher. Being also encourage students to go to schools that have an average student indebtedness of less than $30,000. And then the last, the third variable that we encourage students to really consider and think about are schools that have services for uh, students that are first in their family to go and or have a very small, if any, achievement gap between low-income students and, you know, more privileged students um, or students of color and white students. And so, you know, the third, the third, Category is a little bit tricky. I mean, there's definitely the quantitative achievement gaps that you can measure, but there's also this like, you know, intel that we get from our students around what schools have more services than others and who is supporting others. And in fact, many of the schools, we now have 22 partnership agreements with universities across the country. Many of the schools that we have partnerships with are the schools that are field leading in um, in providing services to first gen students if they're able to get in. So speaking of partnership, you were talking about partnership schools. You also recently announced a, uh, or last year announced a partnership with Kevin Durant and talked about expansion to the East Coast. Tell us a little more about that. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Kevin is an incredible partner. About two years ago, we began the journey um, of giving him a tour of our Oakland Center. And he was deeply interested in figuring out what he was going to do with his philanthropy once he um, had come to the Warriors. He was looking for a place that was was um, as interested in the academic preparation and profile of its students as the social emotional and the other pieces that, you know, just create a whole human. And so, you know, fast forward a couple of years and we opened just this last fall. Um, we're serving 68 students and we are, have just recruited actually another 70, um, who will begin programming, um, this summer actually. So it's all very exciting. And just, we're just outside of, um, of, DC and Prince George's County, Maryland, where where he he spent many of his his formative years, both middle school um, and and high school, and actually that he would have we were actually serving the high school that he would have attended had he not had a, a scholar a basketball scholarship to go to a private high school nearby. Well, congratulations on yeah on that initiative. Thank you. That's thank so you. Great. Thank you. Your work is really all about the the mentoring and the coaching. And, you know, we ask our guests this all the time. If there was someone for you personally that had a big influence or positive impact on um, on your life decisions. Yeah. I Earlier, I mentioned that I was very fortunate to go to a university that was really small and I was able to find a college mentor. She was my 
peace studies professor, actually, who I met my freshman year, who then became my minor advisor, and who was also the art campus minister. Um, So my faith has always been very important to me. I come from a um, a long Catholic tradition. um, And not only did I, I, I worked for her for work study, so we spent a lot of time together, but she really helped me navigate my way through through school. Um, and, I mean, not just financially and getting my courses, but also um, gave me opportunity to explore things I would have never thought about. So the first time I ever got on an airplane, I was 19, and it was through a summer experience program that she led. Um, she also really helped me connect what I wanted to do in the world and what problems I wanted to solve with my my personal faith. And it was just invaluable. And I, I, it's, it's one of the things I talk a lot about when I, when I talk to, to students in college or as they're entering at Summer Bridge is the importance of being able to find just that one. And it could be more. Um, and, and we would encourage kind of a healthy network of adults on campus that can help help guide you. But it's, it's made all the difference in the world. Um, I absolutely would not have gone through college without her or have been so deeply interested in, in social justice um, had it not been for my connection to her. So yeah, it sounds like she had a profound effect on and on your yeah. work now, thinking about mentorship. Absolutely. And, absolutely. And um, that kind of guidance. And the podcast, you know, is called Grow Kinder. Kindness doesn't always enter into the conversation around, you know, competitive college admissions or, or even social emotional competency. I'd love to hear some more about why you think kindness is important, or or how you think of kindness in your work. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we can all agree that we're in a moment of time in our country where um, kindness can have a profound impact in our national conversation. Um, I think for me, generosity and being generous with each other is part of a recognition of our shared humanity. And whether that's a social emotional value or not, um, I think it's the basis of And the other thing about kindness is that it's, it could be so simple. It's, you know, generally within your control to be kind or not. And, you know, a simple smile or an apology or, you know, an, an, a moment of gratitude can be all the difference in really sharing and connecting with people. So, yeah, it's incredibly relevant and it, it enters in at College Track in so many ways. So we have a staff value um, of authenticity, which really does encourage uh, open and, and kind and generous conversation. We have closing circle at all of our centers where we give we have moments of affirmation and gratitude to really remind us of the connection that we have to each other and and just how simple, you know, a tutor walking into the space or helping you with your math homework or someone thinking through financial aid with you, what a simple gesture can have in the profound journey of your life. So we're big fans of kindness at College Check. As are we. (laughs) Thank you so much, Elisa, for chatting with us today. And if listeners want to know more about you or College Track, where can they go? www.collegetrack.org. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Elisa Salas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. too. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Alyssa Salas, CEO of College Track. You can find more episodes at growkinderpodcast.org. And if you enjoyed our conversation today, make sure to rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher.